for this offer of paradise, that Jesus, your death opened a whole new life for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts now to hear your word, that you would help us exercise faith and give the gift of faith to those that don't have it. And I pray for me that you would help me preach well this morning. And I ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, I introduced the new sermon series for Lent. For these six or so weeks of Lent, we'll be looking at a sermon series on the last words of Christ, the words from the cross that he spoke. And last week, I told you that you can learn a lot about a person's heart by what they say in their final moments. And this morning, we're going to get to hear not just what Christ's words were, but we're going to hear the words of the two criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. And last week, I also mentioned that there are a number of prophecies, upwards of 300 minor prophecies total, but 60 major prophecies of who the Messiah would be. And I want to read one of them to you because it's relevant for today. The, the so-called burning heart of Scripture is the passage from Isaiah 52 and 53. And Isaiah 53, 9 says, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked. And verse 12 says, He poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So 900 or so years before Christ, Isaiah said he is going to be numbered among the transgressors. He's going to be crucified with criminals as though he were one, and he's identifying with them to bear their sins. That was 900 years before Christ that was written, and it's just one of many prophecies that he fulfilled in his ministry. So when you drive down the road and you see somebody that's portraying uh, Mount Calvary where he was crucified, a lot of times you'll see three crosses. You know, there's one in the center, Christ, and then one on either side, the two criminals. And it's a reminder to us that he stepped into the place of the guilty for us. He stood among those that were condemned. All four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention that he was crucified between two criminals. Um, It can be criminals, it can be thieves, robbers. Uh, The Greek word actually can imply insurrectionists. So they were likely Jews, not Greeks or Gentiles of some variety. They were Jews who were uh, subverting Rome. They were causing insurrection or trying to and were caught and snuffed out and then were hanged for it. So um, they were insurrectionists, and they both speak a rhetorical question. The first one says, are you not the Christ? And the second one says, do you not fear God? These are rhetorical questions implying the opposite. In other words, you are not the Christ. Implying and saying, if you were, save yourself and us. Get us off these crosses. Clearly, you're not the Christ. That's what his rhetorical question is implying. And the other one's rhetorical question is, do you not fear God? Meaning, you don't fear God. You are being judged for what you've done. You are still in your sins, and this man between us is innocent. And so he speaks this word of rebuke. These are two very different attitudes, two very different heart dispositions in the dying moments of these men. And let me tell you something that Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Today, we'll see how easy and common the wide way is. The first criminal is on the wide path, and it's just so easy to be there. We'll compare and contrast with that, though, the man who repents and turns to Jesus and finds the narrow way, even though it's hard and narrow. He finds that way, and then we'll see what Jesus has to say. So we're going to look at all three of these men. What does the first man say? What does the second man say? And then what does Jesus say? So let's, let's start with the first man. There is nothing special here. Everyone, in fact, starts in this place. He is a man of the world, and he's full of himself. We all start out that way. He's following what everybody else is doing. Just because everybody else is doing it, it's easy to fall in line with that and be like everybody else. The Jews, they were, they were mocking Jesus because clearly the Messiah wouldn't be crucified. God's law says that anyone who's, who's crucified, anyone who's, who's hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Clearly, God's anointed wouldn't be under his curse. So they mocked him. You're not the Christ. If you were the Christ, come down off that cross. You saved others, save yourself. And the Romans jumped in too. It says the king of the Jews above him. And they said, you're not a king. This isn't what a king would do. You maybe want to be a king, but clearly you're not. Rome is the biggest empire. We're strong. You're going to overthrow the emperor? I don't think so. And they mocked him as, a, as though he was a king or wanted to be a king, but he wasn't. And so what, is, what do the thieves do? They just jump right in. And they mock as well, because that's the direction, that's the current of culture, and they're doing what everybody else is doing. It's easy to do what everybody else is doing. And this person is caught up in himself. Get me off this cross. Save me from this cross. I, I say that all of us start out this way because that's just the human condition. It's very common. It's the wide path. We do what other people do, and we care about ourselves. I mean, just think about the smallest child. What, is, what are the first words that a baby learns? No, me, right? No, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want what I want. Me, it's about me. And then how do we grow? Well, we copy. We look what other people are doing. And, and babies and children are always imitating what they see to try it on and practice it and learn. So they look at what everybody else is doing and they do that. This first man is just a grown-up version of the same thing. When I was a youth pastor, I took a group of students from South Carolina up to, I think it was in Charlotte, a big stadium-wide event, and they had a really gifted preacher there. And I don't remember a lot about the event, but I remember his three points from his sermon because they rhymed and they were really convicting. And he was talking about the, the current of society, the tendency in this world that we see. And he says, this world will daze you, then it'll haze you, and then it'll raise you. And he said, it dazes you, like it, it gets you into a stare. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have binged on uh, something on TV, some Netflix show you've binged watched? No, I, didn't, I told you, you didn't have to raise your hand. But thank you for your honesty. But, but it, we get days, we get, you just, we talk about vegging out, right? It's like my mind has become a vegetable. It's easier to just sit on the couch and watch the TV. And I just turn it on and, and, you know, it's so unfair that the next episode starts in five seconds unless you stop it. It dazes you and then it hazes. And what happens is it's communicating values. It's communicating their versions of the truth. And you start to accept certain behaviors and things and practices and 
all of this stuff, and you start to get into a big haze, a fog. You don't know what's right from left or up from down, and you just do what you see. You start to become like that. You imitate it. It dazes you, and then it hazes you, and then it raises you, and then it brings up the next generation. Our society today is different than it was 20 years ago in a whole number of ways because of that process that has happened. The thief or the robber or the criminal, the first one on the cross, is simply manifesting that. He's doing what everybody else is doing, and he cares about himself. That's it. That's his situation. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the church at Corinth, he said this about the cross, because it's not very easy to find that narrow way. The cross looks like foolishness to the world. People see the crucifix, the cross with Jesus' body on it, and it looks weak and shame-filled. I mean, it does have shame. He was bearing our shame. But they don't recognize that right away. It looks foolish. It looks dumb. Paul writes this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he goes on and he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That message doesn't make sense to the world. And the wide path rejects it. People that go in the wide path, they reject the cross. It looks like foolish, something foolish to them. Now, this man's idol, his idolatry was himself. And we've all prayed this prayer, and you have to admit this. If you are God, and we look up to heaven, God, if you're up there, fix my problem. Right? We've, We've prayed some variation of that prayer, every one of us. And sometimes there's a bargaining with it. If you fix my problem, then I'll do this thing for you. God, I promise, if you'll just save my job, I'll never miss church again. We cut some deal, and we turn God into like a genie in a bottle. If I just say the right incantation, he comes out and he does what I wish. I get my three wishes or whatever it is. And this man is saying, if you are the Christ, save us. Save us off this cross. I've got this problem right now, and I need it fixed. I need a God to fix my problem. That makes you, of course, the God, and the one you're asking to fix your problem, your helper. It gets the whole thing inverted. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes, but the foxholes aren't where faith is really forged. You know, in the foxhole, when your life is in danger and there's trouble coming, you'll do whatever, whatever it takes. I'll try anything to get out of this mess. Maybe God, maybe something else. On... Um, Our morning prayer this week, we were reading through uh, the daily office, and we got to where Jesus feeds the 4,000. You know, he did two of those major signs. He fed 5,000 one time, and another time he fed 4,000. So imagine that. They're three days out into the wilderness. They've been without food. Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing, and so he's got compassion on them. So he feeds them just with some loaves and fishes, and they realize what has happened. 4,000 people, that's the men counted, plus the women and children. So it's more like, I don't know, eight, 10,000 people. He feeds them with a few loaves and fishes. The very next verse, it says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and demanded that he perform a sign for them. He says, no sign will be given to this sinful and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so will the son of man be. He said, that's your sign. Of course, they had so many signs that had been given, not least of which is 4,000 people being fed, and they're asking for yet another sign. These, these men on the cross next to Jesus had seen all sorts of stuff. 
They heard the crowds mocking Jesus saying, he saved others, let him save himself. The reason the crowds were coming is because Jesus was healing them. He healed every single person that came to him. The sick people, the people with demonic oppression, the people that were blind, the people that were deaf, mute. There was no one that came to him for healing that he didn't heal. Those are a lot of signs and wonders. That's enough. But this guy wants one more. If you are the Christ, get me off this cross. Solve my problem, and then I'll believe in you. And that's the way, the wide path. I'm going to do what the rest of the world does, and I care about myself. That's my God. That's typical. It's easy. The question becomes, do I believe that God knows what's best for me or not? Now, let's look at man number two. This is a far rarer person who finds the narrow way, who renounces the world and self, instead comes to Christ. Matthew and Mark two of the other gospel writers, both mention that Jesus was crucified in between these criminals. And, and he uses the plural. They both use the plural when they say, and the criminals reviled him and mocked him and railed against him. So the way you reconcile that is they both started out mocking. And then as the day wore on, one of them had a change of heart. He watched Jesus, as we did last week, say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they pounded the nails into his hands. He saw the way that Jesus, even though he was physically in weakness and shame and was bearing our sin, was spiritually a king. He was the Christ. He came to recognize that he died as God. Even the Roman centurion said, surely this is the son of God. And he has a change of heart. He publicly admits his sin and does what is the hardest thing to do. He stops trying to have excuses. He says, I did this. This is me. I caused this. I'm on this cross because I sinned. And so when he asked the rhetorical question of the other, the other criminal, he says, don't you fear God? We are under the same condemnation and we justly deserve this. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. He publicly has just said, I'm guilty. How hard that is to do. I was thinking about the movie Shawshank Redemption, the old movie that has uh, Tim Robbins in it. I love that movie. It's got dark themes in it, but it's about redemption, and it's got such powerful dialogue. And there's a scene where um, the Morgan Freeman character, Red, is talking with Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins' character, out in the courtyard, and um, somebody says, Andy, what are you in for? You know, that like terrible question, I guess, if you're in prison. So what's your crime, right? And, and he shouts across, they, uh, Red shouts across to another guy and goes, hey, what are you in for? Are you guilty? And they all say, I'm innocent. It's my lawyer's fault. It's my, my lawyer hurt me. And, but Andy Dufresne says, I murdered my wife. And of course, he actually didn't literally do it. He said, but I, I, I overworked. I neglected her. I was a terrible husband. I destroyed my marriage. Sure, somebody else actually murdered her and framed me, but I murdered my wife. He was the only guilty man in Shawshank, Red says, Everybody else is innocent. Nobody else wants to say, I'm the criminal, and I got caught, and I'm the bad person. We want to excuse our sins, and we want to pretend we're not so bad. And this man on the cross publicly says, I'm getting what I deserve. I deserve this cross, but not this guy. This guy next to us, he's innocent. This is an 11th hour conversion. It's interesting to note that he doesn't ask to get saved off the cross. He's asking to be remembered in the kingdom to come. 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The other guy's saying, save us, get us off the cross. I'm dying here. Fix this problem. He doesn't ask for that. He wants a relationship with God. He wants to be remembered by God who is the king when he comes into his kingdom. He repents of his sin and he asks for a place with Jesus. It's an 11th hour conversion. And you know, that upsets some people. It frustrates the wicked and the righteous religious types think it's, it's not just. Jesus once told a parable of an owner of a vineyard who um, hired out people to work his vineyard at harvest time. And at the beginning of the day, he negotiates, here's, I'll pay you a day's wage to work a 12-hour day. And they start. And three hours in, he finds some other people and he says, you go work as well and I'll pay you whatever's right. And then he does it at noon and then he does it at three. And then it's five o'clock. The, the whistle blows at six. They worked six to six. At 5 p.m., he finds somebody and says, you go work as well. And then he tells the foreman, when they're done, bring the, they'll come in here, start with the one who was hired last and pay them all a day's wage. So when the, when the other ones see that the guy that worked one hour got a full day's wage, they assume a linear scale and they're all going to get paid way more than they deserve. And they're indignant about it. And he says, do you begrudge my generosity? I'm not cheating you. Take what's yours and go. I've treated you fairly. You begrudge my generosity. And see, with these 11th hour conversions, some people think, the, the more criminal type people think, how can I manipulate the system so I can get in at 5 p.m. and get paid for 12 hours? And the religious types, they want everyone to be paid on a fair scale because they're working so hard, they want to be recognized for all their effort. Look at me, God, how good I am. I'm not like so-and-so. I'm doing better than them. I want to get a little more. But it's about me. The person who's found the narrow path, when they hear about a conversion like this, they celebrate because they recognize God's grace is so big. We are so excited when somebody, when anybody turns to Christ, even late in life in the last moment. We all celebrate. No one feels like they've been cheated. In fact, people that have walked with Christ the longest feel the most blessed. I've known people that have said, oh man, you know, you became a Christian when you were a teenager, so you didn't get to do all the bad stuff. That's how they see it. And I went, oh no, you became a Christian late in life. You had to do all those bad, dumb things and live for yourself all that time when I've been learning to walk with Christ all these years. I pity you, but I'm grateful that you made it in when you did because he is so good. The 11th hour conversion is incredible because of God's grace. Now let's consider the third person, Christ on the cross and what he actually says. He is condemned for our sin, but he is very much still the Lord. While he's on that cross, he is still the judge of the world and he makes a judgment. He says, today, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise to the thief that repents, the criminal that turns to him. Because Jesus is Lord and Savior. Even though he was being crucified, he didn't lose that authority. When he says, truly I say to you, it's, he's saying, amen, this is true. He's speaking with kingly authority as the Lord and Savior of all. And he's saying, I promise you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I want you to note something about coming to faith in Christ. It doesn't allevi alleviate all of our temporal problems. He was still bleeding to death and suffocating on a cross. But the big difference is Christ, who expired quickly because he was already under such duress, those other guys had to hang there till sunset until they were actually, the process was sped up for them in a violent manner. But they, they watched Christ die 
And one of them had the comfort of the last words of Christ to him being, today you'll be with me in paradise. That was a hard day for him, but how much harder for the other one who couldn't turn to Christ now because Christ couldn't answer anymore. One of them was able to steady his heart for the long hours to come as he watched the clouds get dark and the sky and all the weird things that happened because the Son of God was dying and bearing the sin of the world. He knew the promise of God that he would be in paradise that day. And the Greek word for paradise there is the one that they used to translate for the, for the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden. So basically, Christ is rebuilding the Garden of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But there's no serpent, there's no sin left in the new garden, and it's better even than the first one. And he's saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. What great comfort that is to that man on the cross. In his long hours of pain, he was comforted by the promise of paradise and the promise of relationship. He's not saying, fix my problems. He's saying, I want to be with you. And Jesus says, today you will be with me. So oftentimes the world wants the blessings of God without God. We want the blessings, not the blesser. And this man just wants to be remembered by Christ. He just wants Christ. And the incredible thing, don't go after it for this reason, but the incredible thing is when you get Christ, you get it all. You're co-heir with him in this kingdom. You live in paradise. You get the whole thing. But you don't want all that other stuff. You care about him because he is the true prize and treasure. To know Christ and be known by him is what this is about. I want you to note that Christ was quick to receive him. There was no pause as he pondered. Christ wasn't thinking, hmm, and going through that guy's life in any way. Immediately he responded and encouraged him. And I want to point out that, that it's never too late in life. As it doesn't matter what year, what age you are, it is never too late to come to Christ. This man was on his last day, comes to Christ, and all of heaven rejoices with that. So it's also never too far. There is no sin that you can commit that is too big that Christ's death on the cross did not pay for. It's not too big of a sin, and you're not too far gone. You can always turn to Christ, and he's quick to receive. So the question is, are you willing to trust Jesus, not just with your death, like someday I want to die and go to heaven and be in paradise, whatever that is. Are you willing to trust him with your life now, as well as your death, to go against the way that the world goes, to choose the narrow path instead of the wide one, to die to self, to take up your own cross and follow him and make him your Lord? That's the invitation. That's the question. That's the difference between these two men. One went the way of the world and self, the other went to Christ. One gets paradise, one does not. I'm going to conclude now by praying just a, a simple prayer. I'm going to put it in the first person as though I was that second criminal. And I want to encourage you to pray along just in your heart with me and make Jesus your Lord. Let's pray. Christ, I'm a sinner. I've been absorbed with myself I've been doing what I see the world doing, and I'm sorry. You died on that cross for my sins, and I receive your forgiveness that you're offering. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Help me to live for you. For I ask this in your name. Amen.
We invite you now to stand. We're invited into the kingdom of God. And this is what our king is like. And this is what our king has done. Let's profess together.